From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Doctors would like to have a reliable and quick way to diagnose Lyme disease in their patients, and today we'll hear about an exciting study taking place at Upstate that may help develop a better diagnostic test for Lyme disease. Talking with me is Dr. Christopher Paulino, an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology, and he's also the principal investigator for this study. Thank you for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Paulino. Thank you for having me. Can you first tell us about the tests that already exist for Lyme disease? Yeah, sure. So there are a lot of tests out there. So I'm really going to just focus on the FDA approved tests because those are the ones that have really kind of gone through the stringent testing and, and validation. Um, so the, the first and the most well recognized is the standard two tier test that's been around for about 35 years since they really adopted that. And it's a two-tier test because it, it encompasses two separate tests. There's an ELISA that's used as a screening test, and then there is a confirmatory Western blot. Um, it's basically measuring antibody responses to Lyme and the uh, and the the resulting antibodies that that you would be able to detect uh, from the infection. And um, ELISA, are... ELISA and Western blot are different types of blood tests. There are different types of blood tests to using different technologies, uh, both essentially looking at antibodies. The ELISA is looking at kind of overall antibodies. And then the Western blot will look at multiple different types of antibodies to, to Lyme disease. And it gets a little complicated um, because for the Western blot, you need to have, based on the CDC guidelines, a minimum of two out of three of the IgM bands and a minimum of five out of 10 of the IgG bands for it to be a confirmed positive test. Um, we've had a couple other tests uh, over the, the past couple of years. There is a, uh, a C6 uh, assay, uh, which is another antibody looking uh, at a response to the C6 surface protein on, on the Lyme bacteria. That was used quite a bit um, kind of on the side. And that seems to have been replaced more recently by the modified two-tier test, which is uh, a newer test that's come out over really the past two years, um, looking instead of uh, at a, an ELISA and a Western blot and looking at really two different ELISA tests. Um, and the, the thought process is that it will have better, better sensitivity early in the disease process um, and, and have a shorter duration from testing to results. So how long does it take to get the results? When a patient gives the blood work, how, how long until you can tell them whether they've got the antibodies? Yeah, it depends. Um, if you're if you're at an academic institution that can run the, the standard two-tier test, we can generally get the testing back within a couple of days. Many of the uh, tests uh, at some of the community hospitals or uh, outside clinics, there, there may be a week to two-week lag time, depending on... Uh, where it's being sent to and, and how long the send out takes. All right. Well, before we talk about the Lyme study that you're the immune sense Lyme study that you're involved with, let's get some basics about Lyme disease. Listeners may already know that it's a disease transmitted through the bite of an infected tick, but what happens in the body after the tick bite? Yeah, I think I think we could even start at the tick itself, right? So a lot of there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to vector-borne diseases. So blood-sucking insects injecting bacteria or viruses into the body, it doesn't generally just occur like a hypodermic needle, like you, you get stuck by the, the biting mechanism and all of a sudden you're infected. 
So the reason why a lot of uh, uh, public health authorities will say, you know, you really need to have a bite that's been attached for 36 hours or longer is really due to the fact that the biology going on in the ticks is occurring. So the, the bacteria for Lyme, for example, lives in the mid gut of the tick. And when you have a blood meal, say a tick bites you, the blood comes into the tick, um, the bacteria senses that blood meal, starts to change its, um, its activity, will burrow through the mid gut of the tick, and then kind of disseminate through the tick's um, lymph, uh, hemolymph system or blood, blood system, and then make its way to the salivary glands, which it then injects into the body. Um, after the spirochetes make its way into the body, it, it's basically going to replicate and start to disseminate through the skin. And then once that occurs, that's when you may see the rash occur and you see uh, the spirochetes will go through the, um, the bloodstream and disseminate through the body of the person that's infected and go to one of the many target organs, whether it's the, the joints, potentially the heart, uh, or potentially the nervous system. So aside from this rash, this characteristic, I, I think it's a, a bullseye looking rash, mm -hmm. are there symptoms that a person should be alert to? You mentioned that it depends on which body system is affected, but what are the symptoms you might feel? Yeah, so it depends on kind of where we're at in the infection. So if somebody gets a tick bite, you know, anywhere between, you know, a week to four weeks after the tick bite, they may see a rash. Um, it doesn't happen universally. Um, some people just don't get a rash at the tick bite. Some people, maybe the tick bite occurs in an area of the body where they, they can't really see the rash easily, um, maybe up on the scalp, for example. Um, and then associated with that early infection, uh, potentially with the rash or shortly thereafter, you can have flu-like symptoms, fevers, headaches, body aches, chills, things that would otherwise be kind of chalked up as maybe a summer cold, um, just without the respiratory symptoms. Um, and then as you kind of get into the, um, the early disseminated phase of the infection, as it does get out into the, some of the other uh, organ systems, um, you can either have uh, Lyme meningitis, uh, which is where it affects the, the brain and spinal cord, and it can cause bad headaches, uh, it can be difficult to, to look at bright lights because it hurts your eyes. Um, you can get some neck stiffness as well as the fevers and chills. And then in some cases, it can uh, affect the heart and cause a heart block where your, your heart rate can actually drop down to very low levels, lower than would normally be seen in an otherwise healthy person. And that can actually be more concerning and life-threatening. As we kind of get later on, um, that's when the joints and arthritis can really start to set in. And then in some of the unlucky few who, um, who don't really respond well to the antibiotics, or maybe they, they get antibiotics, but it's kind of late in the process of the infection, you can go on to have more chronic symptoms um, where there's a little bit more controversy in terms of what's causing it. Um, you know, I think many of the, many of the researchers believe that it's no longer an active infection after it's been treated. Um, and it's more of a chronic, um, uh, illness, whether it's, uh, inflammatory or neurologic damage or whatever it may be. Um, it's, uh, it's something that antibiotics probably aren't going to help a whole lot with kind of, kind of like what we're seeing with the COVID long haulers, right? So people recover from the infection, the infection's gone, but now they're having chronic symptoms afterwards. So the treatment generally is antibiotics, but mm -hmm. it seems like the earlier in the course of the disease, maybe the more helpful they may be. Yeah. And that's why early detection and diagnosis is important because 
the longer somebody goes with these symptoms, the more damage that can be done to the body, the more inflammation, uh, the more potential neurologic damage to the nerves. Um, so we really want to try to get the diagnosis as early as possible. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Lyme disease researcher, Dr. Christopher Paolino. So tell us about the Immune Sense Lyme study. How is this Immune Sense designed to work? To take a step back, the tests that we currently have are measuring antibodies, right? So, and, and that, and that in, in a sense, is an indirect test, right? So a direct test would be, you know, culturing a bacteria from a blood sample or, or a sample somewhere, or, or potentially looking for the DNA of the infection um, in a sample. Um, really, the only direct tests that are available for Lyme disease are a PCR test, where you look for the DNA of the bacteria. And it's really only useful if you're doing it off of an inflamed or swollen joint. Now, as far as the, uh, the current test, we're measuring antibodies. Um, uh, we're really measuring the antibody response. And because people can have uh, a little bit of a delay from the infection to the time that they mount a measurable antibody response, that's where that sensitivity early in the course of the disease process is quite low, 20, maybe 30% positive. Um, the difference with the immune sense test is it's really looking more at the T cell response. So there's the, um, the antibody response. This is really kind of um, targeting the B cells and the B cells ability to mount that antibody response. Whereas the T cells are, are basically, um, they're looking for the infection in the body. They're looking for changes in some of the cells um, and identifying you know, that there is a potential infection there. And then they can kind of branch out and either uh, clone themselves to create kind of killer cells that will help treat the infection or potentially change themselves so that they can alert those B cells to say, hey, we need to start to mount an immune response and antibodies. So it's, it's a potential um, avenue where we can maybe have earlier diagnosis um, as, we, as we measure uh, these T cell responses. Now this test, the immune sense test, is basically going to be looking at those T cells and using PCR technology and sequencing technology to look for genetic changes in some of the receptors of those, of those T cells. And they're hopefully, the company uh, Adaptive, is hopefully going to be able to see a difference in those T cells in otherwise healthy people versus people who have Lyme versus people who have other tick-borne diseases, as well as other non-infectious diseases, and see if it makes, um, makes sense and there's actually a signal that they can use to help diagnose earlier. Would it be more accurate uh, to use a test like ImmuneSense for someone who has a compromised immune system? We're looking at the immune system with both aspects, so I don't know how much more effective it would be. The only way to really tell would be to do studies in a more immunocompromised population. So tell us, how does someone go about participating in the study that you're doing right now with ImmuneSense? Sure. Um, so, it, you know, what we're currently looking for at our site are people who have Lyme disease, um, whether they have a rash or not, and are within seven days of diagnosis. I say seven days of diagnosis because almost every provider out there is, is going to basically say, all right, you need to start doxycycline or some other antibiotic therapy early on. We really need to identify these patients within seven days of starting treatment. So anybody with a bullseye rash, anybody with 
um, uh, Lyme-like illness, you know, say Bell's palsy or Lyme meningitis, Lyme carditis, you know, those are the people that we're looking for. There are other site, sites across the country that are also looking at other groups. Um, we were looking at kind of healthy individuals. Um, that group has actually already been filled. Um, there's also um, other sites looking in non-endemic areas where they're looking for uh, people who have things like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or other similar kind of inflammatory processes that are not infectious. Um, and then our, our other group that we're looking for are people who have other known tick-borne diseases. So people who are diagnosed over the summer with things like babesiosis or anaplasmosis or ehrlichiosis, those are all people that we're also looking to, to enroll into the study just to see if the, the test can differentiate between those types of tick-borne diseases as well as Lyme. Is there any age cutoff? Uh, are you accepting children and adults? So I, I'm not a pediatrician. Um, I'm, I'm focusing mainly on 18 years old and older. Um, there, are, there are other sites that are doing this study that do go down to younger age groups. Um, but for myself, we're really just focusing on 18 years old and up. So what will be involved? How many visits? How many tests? Yeah, so um, there's at least one visit. Um, so that initial uh, blood draw and screening visit would be uh, visit one. And then for people who have been identified as having either Lyme disease because of a rash or uh, likely Lyme disease because of kind of symptoms or other diagnostic tests that have been done, um, those individuals are going to uh, be asked to come back three additional times, so up to four different visits. Um, one would be a 30-day follow-up after the initial visit. I believe there's a six-month visit, and then there's also a 12-month visit just to see how the antibody responses uh, change and the immune sense responses change over time. So how would someone go about finding more information for how to participate? Yeah, so um, if you're local to Syracuse, you can reach out to us uh, here at the university, but probably the easiest way to do it for the, listen for the listeners would be to go to the website. There's a website that's set up for this study um, that asks some questions that can kind of help determine whether or not you're eligible. And the website is immunesensestudy.com. And It'll give uh, a little section on the bottom of that uh, that asks the questions, asks some of your contact information, and then uh, we'd be able to reach out to you to determine if you're eligible after that. Now, why should someone consider participating? Well, you know, you know, I, I think the big thing is we can't do these studies and and have advances in the diagnostics unless we have people volunteering to help. Um, so. When it comes to, you know, any kind of clinical research, you know, you don't, you don't get those advances unless you have the, the participants volunteering. Um, you know, I've been involved in the, the COVID Pfizer vaccine study for the past 8 months and, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today without, you know, all of the people that have stepped up and said, yeah, I, I want to help out and try to try to help identify a new vaccine. The same goes for every other disease process out there. You know, we need to have people who. Are willing and able to donate their time and maybe a little bit of blood in the sense of this study um, to uh, to help you know further the science and, and further the diagnostic capabilities that we currently have. I mean, we're like I said earlier, we're using the same tests that we've been using for the past like 35 years. You know, we, we really should have something new and better at this point. So that would be that would be the the big the big reason. 
Well, thank you to Dr. Christopher Paolino. He's an assistant professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.